Evening, everyone. Welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, I certainly trust that you do, open with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 12. Uh, it has been months <laughs> since I uh, was in the Gospel of Mark. We started going through the Gospel, and then I've uh, been out for a while and uh, not been preaching for a while. And so we have a lot of catching up to do as we uh, set the stage for our context tonight. We're going to be reading <coughs> verses 13 through 17. Maybe let me just go ahead and start with verse number 12 because that's very uh, relevant uh, to our uh, study tonight. As you know, I've had an accident. I'm right-handed, and I'm not able to make notes. So, as Jack said, I'm uh, winging it. Uh, but uh, I have studied. So, uh, hopefully, we will be able to gather some uh, truths from God's Word. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer and seek His enabling tonight. And that, that's so desperately what I need. So please uh, pray with me. Precious Lord, once again I come to you as always empty-handed and helpless. Desperate need of you. There's no power in anything I would say unless it comes with the authority of your word and the power of your spirit. And so I pray that you would grant that, grant us understanding hearts as we just sang. Grant us understanding hearts that we might understand the scripture tonight. And I pray that you would grant application to our own lives through your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would uh, give us a willingness to obey what we learn from your word. May we be warned as we read, and may we be encouraged and exhorted and built up on our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's begin in verse number 13. That is Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse number 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Man, they were piling it on, weren't they? Weren't they trying to butter him up? 
And here's the question they're going to ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy. Did you know that if you're a snake, God knows you're a snake? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Now, denarius is a coin, and uh, it's called a, a penny sometimes in the King James Bible. And it's uh, actually, it's a uh, equal to a day's pay, and it's a poll tax. And poll taxes, uh, I always thought a poll tax was them trying to tax you when you went to the polls to vote. But a poll tax actually is a headcount tax. So you pay a penny, they had to pay a penny for every person in their family. Every individual had to pay a penny and that went straight into the emperor's coffers. It went right into uh, uh, Caesar's uh, coffers. And that started in 6 AD and the Jews hated it. They hated it. All of them, even, even the ones that were uh, opposed to the Pharisees and the, uh, uh, the extreme uh, separatists of the day, even those that were their enemies opposed this tax. And so everybody in Israel uh, really hated it. But uh, if they were alive today living in the United States of America, they'd say, a penny a day? I mean, a penny a year for me? <laughs> That's okay. That's not bad at all. But it was, uh, it was, it represented something to them. It represented the fact that they were enslaved by Rome. It was a yearly reminder every time they paid it that they didn't have a choice, that they were enslaved by Rome. And so he says, bring me a denarius, bring me one of these coins and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this. And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, this uh, is a, a an historical incident that uh, is recorded for us here that took place during the last week, the last few days before the death of Jesus. And Jesus was not taken by surprise. And we have already studied and, and gone over this many times up till this point, at least three or four times, Jesus has already told his followers that this was going to happen that these uh, that he was going to Jerusalem and that uh, uh, he would be 
arrested and uh, turned over to the chief priest and uh, the elders of the people, and he would be crucified, and on the third day, he would rise again. And so Jesus is not taken by surprise by any of this. He knows that it's going to happen, and it seems that he even... Uh, uh, almost orchestrates things. He says things and challenges them that uh, uh, provokes them to do things. And so uh, these are people who have come to him who literally despise him. They hate him with every ounce of passion that they can uh, muster. And I'll show you how that... Uh, uh, plays out in just a few moments, but but let's remember that uh, Jesus has been uh, uh, facing them now in uh, these uh, last couple of chapters, and uh, in chapter number eleven we read about his uh, uh, what we commonly call the triumphal em entry into Jerusalem, but it wasn't really so triumphal, was it? There was a mass of people who gathered around him, so many people who had heard about uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, how he raised Lazarus from the dead. There were so many people who had seen the miracles that he had done, and they were following him, and they wanted to be around him, and, uh, and so he did exactly what the prophet uh, Zechariah said he would do. He uh, he sent his disciples to get a little donkey that uh, he told them exactly where it would be and exactly what to do. And they brought the donkey back to him. And he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, just like Zechariah said their Messiah would come. And that crowd of people, and this was a very wise strategic thing that Jesus did even then because we already have been told that they were looking for a way to, uh, uh, to destroy him. They wanted him dead. And so if Jesus had just uh, snuck into Jerusalem uh, with just his disciples, they might have uh, been able to capture him and uh, uh, quietly done away with him, but Jesus didn't let it happen that way. He came in with that crowd shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And, and so there was nothing they could do. And he goes directly to the temple. Remember that? He goes directly to the temple and it's evening. So he just goes in and looks around and goes back to Bethany. And uh, he, uh, uh, the next morning, he sees a fig tree. And it looks like that it, is, uh, that it should have figs on it because it has blooms, or not blooms, but leaves. It's full of leaves. And uh, so uh, he goes to see if there are any figs, and there are no figs. And the point here is that this fig tree, it's not the season for figs, but the point is that the fig tree 
was presenting itself as being full of fruit. It had these leaves on it. And it uh, would make you think that there was fruit. And the picture is of the, the very thing he had seen that the night before when he came into the temple, he came into Jerusalem, he saw the people, the chosen land, the chosen people, Mount Zion, he saw all that in full bloom as if it was full of the fruits that God sought from it. But he looked around in the temple and saw all of the craziness that was going on in there. They were buying and selling and, and uh, they were doing wicked things and using and abusing the temple and the priesthood and all those things. And so uh, he, this is, this is all a picture of that. And so Jesus curses that fig tree and that's a picture of what is happening to Israel. Israel, national Israel, political Israel, the uh, ethnic Israel, this temple, this whole uh, uh, old covenant system is going to dry up and be no more. And so... He curses the fig tree and uh, then he goes into the temple and he drives all that crowd out that are money changers and, and selling sacrificial animals and carrying burdens through the temple for a shortcut to get to another part of the city. He drove them all out and, uh, and turned over the tables of the money changers and... Uh, and it was, uh, no doubt, that was a, a sight to see. It would have been a wonderful thing to have been there to see uh, that. And so still the, the religious leaders are, uh, they, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to react. And, uh, and so he goes back out of the city and when they came back the next morning, they saw that fig tree that was withered up to the roots. And Peter remembered that Jesus had cursed it and he, and he mentioned it. And, and here's, what, uh, here's what he said. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. But you're going to need it. You're going to need it. Things are about to... Uh, happen here he said truly i say to you whoever says to this mountain you notice that word this he did not say as our charismatic uh, i don't know whether to call them friends or not our charismatic uh, uh, acquaintances would say that uh, it, you you should be able to command that mountain to Go into the sea. He says, no. If you say to this mountain. He's talking about Mount Zion here. Be thou cast into the sea. 
Be thou taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What in the world is he talking about? Is he just saying that you can walk up to a mountain and command it to be cast into the sea and immediately it happens? No, what he's talking about is that this Mount Zion, this whole thing, this whole religious system is going to be changed and the, uh, uh, the true Mount Zion, the true city of God, the true dwelling place of God where the true worshipers come together is going to be cast to the sea of humanity and the, the whole world is going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and even the Gentiles that they hate so desperately will be brought into a part of that kingdom. And so he says, uh, and he, he gives them a lesson on prayer. And then the Pharisees come, the religious leaders come in verse 27. And uh, they, uh, uh, they confront him and they say, who gave you the authority to do this? See, he, they thought that he should have come and talked to them. He, where did you get your authority? Well, Jesus said, let me ask you one question. You answer my question and I'll answer your question. And so uh, they said, all right. The uh, baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? It's, we need to talk about that. <laughs> they had their little conference and decided that they couldn't answer because if they said, if they said uh, it's from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him then? And if, it's from, if we say it's from men, uh, we fear the people because they'll lynch us. Because they think John was a prophet. So they were on the horns of a dilemma, right? So they just chose not to answer. And so that brings us to this next uh, set of, of verses, this next incident that we have just read. And here's what, uh, of course... Uh, Jesus, well, I, I skipped a part there. Jesus tells them this parable of, uh, uh, of a vineyard, a man who planted a vineyard and dug the wine press and, and, and led it all out to uh, uh, keepers. And he went into a far country, sends his servants to receive the fruit of the vineyard. And again, this is just a picture of Israel. He brings it right out of, it just comes right out of Isaiah chapter 5. I mean, this is something that uh, they would have already heard before. They were familiar with the story, but he, you know, he told about those, uh, those servants being sent and sent and sent, and they mistreated them, they killed some of them, and they uh, beat some of them. And they treated them all shamefully. And then finally he had one son, his only son. And he said, they'll reverence my son. I'll send my son. And so he sends his only son. And they say, 
This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize on the inheritance. Does he have their number or what? Does he know what's cooking? Does he know what they're thinking? He knows what's going on in their minds. And so he says, uh, he, he gives them this parable. <coughs> and he uh, reminds them that the stone, the prophets have said, and, and this is uh, from the Psalms and uh, several places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. The stone that the builders rejected. They're the builders. He's the stone. They've rejected him. But he said it's become the head of the corner. And it becomes the head of the corner through that death that they're, gonna, they're going to impart to him. They're going to kill him, but he's going to rise again. So, we get to verse number 12 in chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, what about that? They got it. They got it. Don't, doesn't it seem like that after they heard that, that they would be pricked in their hearts? They actually got it. But their response was not repentance. Their response was to plot. To find a way to destroy him. And then in verse number 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Let me read Luke's account of this because it really makes it clear. Listen to what Luke says in, in uh, chapter 20 and verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You see what's going on here? They have a plan. He put us on the horns of a dilemma, so to speak. We'll put him on one. And so they came up with this question that they're going to ask him. And they know that if he answers either way, either way he goes, they've got him. <laughs> we, we've got him. There's no way he can get out of this. And so they come up and they ask him the question, teacher, uh, First of all, they haven't had any respect for him at all up until now. Their every, every encounter with them has been hostile. And so 
they now they come up like buddies. Teacher, we know, and we've always known this, the, the tense here, you know, they're saying, you know, we've always known. We've always known that you are true. <laughs> well, why did they say that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub if they've always known he was true? And do not care about anyone's opinion. You, your own man, Jesus, you don't care about anybody else's opinion. You're not afraid of anybody. Wish I would like you, Jesus. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now let's, let's look at these goons that have come to Jesus here. They are, the scripture says that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now if you've ever done any study at all, you know that the Pharisees are the extreme conservatives of that society. They were the separatists. These were the people who held to the law, the whole law. They uh, supposedly believed every word of every book uh, that they had access to of the Old Testament. These were people who, uh, who treasured, quote unquote, the word of God. And they had standards, they had high standards, they were closely aligned with the scribes who were the experts in the law, and they were uh, well versed in the uh, oral traditions and, uh, and all the uh, different forms of writings that were commentaries on the law. They knew it all. These were those people who would oppose anyone who was not uh, a Jew who would uh, try to come in and subjugate them. And they were against Rome altogether. And then there were the Herodians. So they've come together. You know who the Herodians are? They are the political group that liked it that Rome was there. And they were pretty happy with the uh, systems that Rome had set up and put the Herods over them. And that was their political affiliation. They were... Uh, uh, some were even related to uh, the Herods. And so they really were uh, uh, backers. It, it would be, you couldn't find two groups in Jewish society that would be more diametrically opposed to one another as far as their philosophy of life goes. 
That's pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Can, can you imagine, can you imagine sometime if, uh, uh, say, uh, the squad, what's the name of those people? I don't know if they're still there or not. I think there's three or four uh, people in Congress that are just opposed to every ideal that America was built upon. They are opposed to all moral standards, opposed to the Constitution. And then there's extremists like that uh, 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 Marjorie Green or something. I mean, she's all the way over on the other side. Can you imagine them all getting together and going after somebody? Well, this is exactly what's happening. Isn't it amazing that the people, and I'm not trying to get political, but isn't it amazing that, that uh, there is a religion that is now moving across the world and they've attacked us many times and they're uh, given to extremism and the extremists hate homosexuality. They hate immorality they hate uh, all the all the things that a certain liberal party in our country embrace and teach but when they come to the United States and get into Congress what party do they align with you see there's opposites there complete diametrically poles apart opposites and they come together over one thing that they hate more than anything and that is the United States of America well this is exactly what's happening here we've got we've got the Herodians and we've got the Pharisees who normally would rather, uh, they would rather kill each other than speak to one another, but yet they are united in one common purpose, and that is to get rid of this man that goes around loving people and, and saving people and casting out demons from people and raising dead folks. They hate that kind of thing. So bad that they're willing to join up with their enemies in order to catch him. Catch him in his words. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful? Is it right according to God's law? You don't care about Herod. You don't care about Caesar. <clears throat> you don't care about these political leaders. You're you're a man on, of your own. You're bold and strong, and and uh, and so and you're truthful. You don't care who it hurts. And so, according to God's law, should we pay this this poll tax to to Caesar? And listen to what Jesus says. Or the scripture says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them that Jesus knew 
what was up. As I've already said, he, the word that's uh, used here, hypocrisy, is hypocrisis, uh, uh, and it just uh, it means a bad actor. These guys are are actors, and they're not even good at it. <laughs> they're hypocrites. They are pretending to be something that they are not. Now listen, you know, I, I, I'm convicted by this passage of Scripture because there are so many people and so many instances we find in the Scripture where people have, they, they become hypocrites because they don't understand that God is not swayed by their fancy words. They don't understand. Remember when uh, uh, Samuel told uh, Saul to go and, uh, and destroy uh, this place and the king and everything and, and all their animals and all? And Saul thought, well, you know, that's a waste to kill all these valuable animals. I'll bring them back and make sacrifices to God because that's what God wants. He likes bloody sacrifices. You see, his problem was he didn't know God. He didn't know that God is concerned about the heart. The sacrifices that God wants is a broken and contrite heart. And he didn't know that. He thought God would be impressed with a thousand goats or lambs or, or bullocks or whatever he had. And he was going to do that. And, and people actually think that you can impress God by a, a well-worded prayer. But as man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. It's the heart he's interested in. The people in the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, those people, they had uh, allowed themselves to be lured into the, uh, the, the thinking that as long as they were busy and doing a lot of things for God, that that would satisfy God. But Jesus said, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. He's interested in their hearts. Yeah, do all those things, but do it from the heart. Going to church is good, but where is your heart? I remember uh, Ivor Powell reading a, uh, a uh, character study that Ivor Powell did on the woman who, uh, the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and, and uh, said, uh, uh, and just called out to him, you know, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Ivor Powell said, she was a Gentile. Sure, she had the same complexion. Sure, she probably was speaking the same common language. And, uh, and sure, 
she knew all these uh, Jewish stories and things, but she thought she could fool Jesus into thinking she was one of his sheep or one of the Jewish people that he came to, and she thought she would claim him as her Messiah, and they, and then Jesus would do what she asked. And Jesus said, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. In other words, I know who you are. I know who you are. You can't impress me by your talk. And, and so this is something you and I need to get really clear in our minds that just mouthing the words of prayer, mouthing the words of a song, mouthing scriptures from rote memory, that doesn't impress God. He's interested in your heart. What's going on in your heart? And the, the real problem is that when we, and we are subject to this, and this is why I said I, I'm convicted by it, because when we are not constantly filling ourselves up with God's Word, meditating on it, and applying it in our lives, or in other words, living it out, then our default position is hypocrisy. Because we're forced to pretend to be something that we're not. Oh, God have mercy on us, on me. Well, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, I'm, I'm told, I, I meant to look up a picture of it, but I'm told that on one side this coin had the picture of uh, Caesar, and on the other side it uh, called him the, uh, uh, basically called him God. And... Uh, that also was offensive to the Jews. But they were forced to use that kind of money because that was the, uh, the capital of the realm. And so they had to use it. And, uh, and so Jesus looks at it and says, whose, whose inscription, whose image is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. And Jesus blew their minds. He said, okay. You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Well, how do we know that uh, coin belonged to Caesar? It's got his face, it's got his image on it, right? It's got his inscription on it. Well, where's God's image? Where do we find God's image? Where, what are we going to give to God that has his image on it? And when we talk about image, we're not talking about physical characteristics, right? 
when the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talked about Jesus being the express image of God, he wasn't talking about his physical body. He's talking about his, his spirit, his, his person, his holiness, his goodness. That's the image of God. And we were created in that image, but it was marred by the fall. And so what we must do is give ourselves wholly and completely to him. Giving that denarius to Caesar was just giving a penny over and done for a year. But giving the thing that belongs to God, the image that belongs to him, giving that to God requires lifetime sacrifice. It's everything. Everything. Not just to part. Oh, you remember... The woman who came to anoint the feet of Jesus. And she had a box of alabaster ointment. And she didn't just screw the lid off of it and dab a little on it. The Bible said she just broke it and poured it out. I don't want any of it back. <laughs> Hallelujah. I don't want any of it back. I'm giving it all. This is all. It all belongs to Jesus. That's what the image of God is supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be doing is giving ourselves wholly to Him. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's, that's the key. And that's what blew these people away. And they marveled at him, as well they should. But that's not the end of the story, and we'll get to that mm. next time. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Help us. Help us that we might apply it to our hearts. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, mm -hmm. amen.